Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, real police ghost stories, true tales of the paranormal as told by cops and other law enforcement officials. When a case goes cold and there is absolutely nothing else to work with, why not work with a psychic? It could give you some ideas, you know, stir your thinking about the case. So I know that in my department, we've utilized psychics. We just kind of keep it under our hat. This segment, sponsored by The Horrible Movie Podcast, available at iTunes and thehorriblemoviepodcast.com. Remember, just because it's from Hollywood doesn't mean it isn't horrible. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday, and I hope you had a chance to listen to Coast to Coast last night. I had a great time speaking with Don Jeffries about his new book on bullying, bullyocracy. Such an important discussion to have. Bullying is such a huge problem. It was also great catching up with Tom Voigt to talk about some recent developments in the Zodiac Killer case. Hard to believe that cold case is now entering its sixth decade and remains unsolved. Police are often guided by something that's difficult to express in words. Angels? Spirit? Divine intervention? Even police officers are not always sure. However, the 60 true police stories that make up Ingrid Dean's spirit of the badge leave little room for doubt. We are bigger than we think we are. Every day, Police officers can face life-or-death situations that can call for decisions made in the blink of an eye. There's often no time for reasoning. So cops learn to trust their guts. They learn to become comfortable with uncertainty. The men and women in blue rely on more than the letter of the law and the facts of the case when they protect and serve. They receive aid from God, dreams, signs, and symbols. But like the rest of us, Officers can also experience paranormal encounters in everyday life. Ingrid P. Dean, as a retired detective sergeant, forensic artist, and 20-plus year police veteran in the Michigan State Police. Her book, Spirit of the Badge, began as a culminating project for her master's degree in transpersonal psychology and related studies. The project grew as more police officers began to share their extraordinary stories, resulting in an informative, delightful collection of exceptional, heartwarming experiences. Ingrid has a B.A. in art from Wayne State University. She's a professional artist, musician, and writer. She's also a state-licensed polygraph examiner and teaches the art of detecting truth and deception. In addition to Spirit of the Badge, 60 True Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles, and Intuition, Ingrid is also the author of True Police Stories of the Strange and Unexplained. Ingrid, how are you? I'm great. How are you? 
Terrific. Thanks. I'm so delighted to have you here, and I'm really uh, truthfully enjoying, I say that to the polygraph examiner, truthfully enjoying Spirit of the Badge. (laughs) How long did it take you to compile uh, these stories? When did they first start coming to you? You know, I started um, a culminating project for my master's degree in psychology, and that final project was about uh, special special stories by police officers of of an exceptional nature. And so the whole focus was around uh, exceptional human experiences. And then as the project developed, then um, I got all the chapters um, to a really good book. And um, one of the instructors at the college suggested that, you know, this might be something the public would really like to hear since you're showing the human nature of police officers as well as their, you know, openness and um, receptiveness towards the paranormal. The the metaphysical side, the spiritual side of policing, and, yes, the paranormal side, is this something that police officers talk about uh, amongst themselves on a regular basis, or is it kind of, um, kind of hush-hush? I think they're becoming more open. As the years go by, I think that they're more open now, and we're starting to see uh, television shows that are more of an intuitive, uh, metaphysical, paranormal nature. Um, but when I first did this project, which would have been in the late uh, late 2000s, it was more hush-hush. You know, it's uh, an area that um, police would only talk amongst themselves with selective uh, friends and partners. Um, I think now that um, it's it's they're becoming more open about it, and we're we're finding more publicized uh, stories and encounters. So it's getting better. The openness. Those of us that uh, are not um, uh, police officers, we have our preconceived notions about what police work is like. And you write about something in your introduction called the CSI effect. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I I think because of a number of the uh, reality shows on television that the public gets a kind of a misconception on what we're really capable of obtaining in terms of evidence uh, to the point that, you know, they expect us to find fingerprints on corduroy hats, you know, and that's impossible. So... um, uh, these reality shows almost give a um, the illusion that we can do anything uh, when we can't. You know, we have rules and protocol to follow, and there's certain evidence that we're able to collect and other evidence that we can't. So that the CSI effect is about um, shows that people watch and they get that misperception that we're capable of doing more than we can. Right, and, and the other... Uh misconception is that it that it's all about using technology and science and little room for things like intuition or trusting one's gut now when when you come out of a police school a police college uh, I mean you're you're taught you're told about you know the, the tools of the trade and proper police procedure and protocol and how to investigate uh, and maintain a crime scene and so forth but do they ever talk to you about things like intuition or trusting your gut? They talk about trusting your gut. 
um, and you know, it's it's kind of a more grounded way of saying, you know, intuition, you know, um, you know, thoughts that pass through, you know, your mind. If you you think something's dangerous or a threat, it probably is. You know, if the hair is standing on the back of your neck, there's there's a problem. So um, they did. I do remember 1989. I went uh, through recruit school. And they said, pay attention to your gut instinct. And um, I did. And I think there were several occasions in my career uh, where that helped me uh, immensely. You know, nothing to really explain why I, I was being threatened or why I felt fear in a, at a certain traffic stop or in a certain house. But that gut feeling, uh, when that happened, uh, I paid attention and so do a lot of other police officers out there. I want to I want to go back to the early '90s, and I think this is your story. This happened to you, if I'm not mistaken. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were you were uh, in the working the 12th precinct in Detroit, correct? No, oh, it wasn't a you. Officer. Oh, that wasn't um, you. I think that's a story called an angel shield. That's right. Yes. Yes, that's a, a Detroit police officer um, that shared an experience that he had that he considered like an angel encounter or divine intervention. Right, right. This is a rather harrowing tale that could have ended uh, tragically for the police officer. Just walk us through. Tell us what happened. Well, he, he was on patrol. Uh, he was with a new officer that was his partner in the right seat. Uh, there was a, a car that went through a red light, and he decided to pursue it when a civilian kind of looked at him and said, you know, aren't you going to stop that car that went through the red light? So he decides to pursue it, stops the car, and then there are four uh, hoodlum-like people in the car. Um, and as soon as he stops it, the driver of the uh, vehicle jumps out of the car and starts uh, shooting at him with an AK-40 automatic weapon. And the rest of the story is about what he sees and perceives as those bullets are hitting his windshield. Um, and this is what he believes to be an angel encounter because he sees light and all of these bullets going through the windshield. And um, I believe he opens his door and steps out to, to be in a better position. And he never gets hurt. Um, somehow he... Uh, escapes all the, those bullets and survives. Right. Th- those bullets should have gone right through the windshield, and I think he writes they should have hit him in the mouth. Absolutely. I mean, it was an a- it was like an AK-40 automatic weapon, so there were a lot of bullets flying. And they just seemed to deflect off the windshield and bounce straight up. Exactly. And he got out of the squad car, and he looked in and... and the squad car seemed to fill with this ball of, of brilliant light. Yes. Yes, and it's, it's and it was like all in slow motion uh, when he described it to me as well, which is not uncommon when you're in a really traumatic situation where you've only got seconds to respond. You know, the, the way your perception works, it seems like everything slows down. So um, he was adamant that there was a, a huge light uh, that was surrounding the car, and he felt protected. Now, <laughs> I'm I'm wondering how a police officer in that situation files a report. 
does he does he put everything in that report? What does he? How does he do that? How did that police officer end up telling that story to his superiors? My understanding is he was selective in who he told about the the metaphysical quality of it. He didn't talk about uh, the light, you know, in the official report. He just simply stated, you know, um, the facts of what happened, how he stopped the car, you know, the bullets were flying, and that um, nobody was injured. Uh, but he knew what happened and what his perception of is what he thought was divine intervention. And, of course, here, you know, we don't mix religion with, you know, um, <laughs> police work or, you know, belief systems, you know, um, with the facts when we're writing a report. And what about his partner? Did he, What did he witness? Um, I, I think it was a she, ah. and I think that she um, saw part of it and that she eventually um, went for cover other than the vehicle. So she actually uh, ran from, from the vehicle. So um, uh, he shares a little bit of that as well uh, in the story. And, and, and how did that end up changing that particular uh, police officer? Did it, uh, did it change the way that he policed? Did it change the way that he dealt with, with the public that he was sworn to protect and serve? He told me that he felt so protected um, spiritually that he uh, trusted um, his his um, trusted God. You know, trusted his um, his spiritual side uh, for the rest of his career. So it, it did have an effect on him because he survived something that he he didn't believe he should have. So um, it changed his spiritual outlook. Uh, on life. That's what he said. There was a uh, there's a story in the book about a police officer that is stationed in uh, I believe it's Skagway, Alaska. Yes. Uh, and um, well, just yes. just tell us it's what a, happened to this. Uh, Spirits of the North. Yes. Yes, and the officer um, was from Skagway, and he shares his encounters with ghosts at the Skagway Police Department and all of the strange sounds and noises and tricks that the ghosts uh, were playing on him on the night shift. So there's a little bit of humor in that story as well as his, um, uh, his perspective, you know, of what happened. And he was a relatively new officer to the police department at that time, and uh, unbeknownst to him, most all of the police officers knew about the ghosts but didn't tell him about it. So um, uh, it's a great story because it, it, there's some humor in it, too. And what was the experience? What happened to this officer at the, uh, the police station at night? Oh, there were, there were doors shutting each time he would, um, you know, hear sounds and nobody was there. And there were steps that he could hear, um, uh, I believe, walking above him. And there was nobody else in the station except for him. Um, but, you know, he still was guarded, and he would go check these sounds, and, of course, nothing was there. So um, uh, it, it's, a, it's fun to read. And, and I understand at one point, uh, he, I mean, he admitted he was so fearful uh, because this door, 
uh, which he tested. He would close it, it would latch properly, and it wouldn't open, and then it would fly open. And uh, he actually went out into the hallway with his gun drawn. Yes, and that's, yes. Yeah, he did. And <laughs> I think it, it took him time to get used to those sounds and come to um, uh, the understanding that they, they weren't going to go away. Uh, and they did not. Uh, apparently, this particular police station is haunted, and uh, they're still there, from what I'm told. Hmm. <laughs> so... Um, Whenever new officers come on board, um, he says that uh, they kind of, they don't tell the new officer about what goes on there, and they learn for themselves. Um, so, they, it, yeah, there's, I, I believe they even brought somebody in to try to um, get rid of the ghosts, but it didn't work. To exercise the police station? Yes. Are they fearful, not fearful, but somewhat maybe embarrassed um, that, not embarrassed, that's not the right word either, but apprehensive that these stories might get out, get out into the public? Because again, we think of, of, of police officers as being very stoic, being, you know, no nonsense, just the facts and so forth. And then all of a sudden we're seeing this other side, thanks to you. Well, it, you know, and it's a good... Uh, good question, because I do think that, you know, police officers work really hard. They serve the public. They have to testify in court, write accurate reports. So they don't want to look like quacks. So they're not going to tell anybody the kinds of experiences that they have if they're, you know, of a metaphysical nature. They're careful you know, selective of, of who they talk to and make sure that that person is open, you know, to, um, you know, those sorts of exceptional human experiences because they have dignity. You know, we, we, we work very hard and uh, um, we want to be respected and we want to be of service. So sometimes if you tell people these sorts of stories who are, who are not open, to the metaphysical or the paranormal, then um, it, it backfires. Um, none of us want to look bad. We, we always want to look our best and be our best. And when you started soliciting these stories, I mean, how did you do that, and was it difficult to pry these stories out of your fellow men and women in blue? Um, maybe at first um, it was a little bit, uh, difficult, but after I explained why I was collecting the stories and how I was going to honor those stories and write them up and allow them to read those stories before they're published to make sure they're in their exact words, uh, they were okay with it. Uh, in fact, the, the first book is called Spirit of the Badge, and that's the independently published book. And then a couple years later, a publisher picked up the book and they republished it and they called it uh, uh, True Stories of the Strange and Unexplained. And uh, we, we changed about 30% of the stories in that book, but it's primarily the same. And all of the officers were willing to give their names and the police departments that they worked for. So uh, they, they were sticking to their story because um, they knew it happened and that it was the truth. So um, the first book, Spirit of the Badge, I put all of the officers' names in the front of the book to keep them relatively anonymous because I, 
it was protective. You know, I was also a police officer and hesitant uh, in the beginning to put my name with my stories. Right. Because so, I didn't want to look like a quack either. Right. So the, 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 the names are listed first, so we don't know which story to attach to which police officer, correct? Exactly. More of my conversation with Ingrid Dean when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Get on up to GetTheTea.com. There are some great specials happening right now. The Holiday Special Flavor Pack includes one pack of Life Change Super Tea Cleansing Tea, one pack of Formula 13 Peppermint Cleansing Tea, and one pack of Life Change Super Tea Pomegranate Tea. Again, this special includes one package each of Get The Tea's three cleansing teas. And normally, you'd pay the regular price of $105. But right now, the Super Flavor Pack is on for just $70. I drink the Formula 13 Herbal Teas every single morning without fail. And they leave me feeling refreshed, clear-headed, and more energy than many people I know who are half my age. Start feeling rejuvenated right now. This tea is specially formulated to help cleanse your kidneys, liver, colon, and blood all at once. Order now at GetTheTea.com. And don't forget, use the code UNLIMITED on all your orders, and you won't pay for shipping. It's time to get the tea at GetTheTea.com. If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. (laughs) Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Ingrid Dean, author of Spirit of the Badge, 60 True Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles, and Intuition. And I wanted to talk to you about a, um, I'm not sure where in, in the United States uh, the Bowers Harbor Inn is, but it's uh, it apparently had quite a reputation as being a, a haunted restaurant. First of all, where is the Bowers Harbor Inn? It's in Traverse City, Michigan. Ah, okay. This story was provided by a young officer who was responding to a burglar alarm call at the restaurant and didn't know about the fact that it was haunted. And as I recall, she goes inside to do the normal inspections to make sure that nobody's in there, so her gun is drawn. And as I recall, the ghost of the restaurant makes all sorts of strange sounds and noises and plays tricks on the officer, but eventually even locks her inside a room at the inn, when she's the only one in there and her partner is on the outside of the building, she eventually gets out. But that's what the story's about, and she talks about her experience going to this uh, alarm call. And, of course, it's a midnight shift. It sounds like a cliche, you know, and, and this happened to be kind of a dark and stormy night to boot, but is that when a lot of the paranormal stuff happens on the midnight shift, or can it happen at any time of day? Any time of day, I think they become naturally a little bit more spooky when it's at nighttime and you don't have light helping you to see, but the incidents can happen any time of day. And how about for you? I mean, we haven't talked about you and your experiences. I don't know if any of these are yours in the book because, again, the copy that I have, all the officers involved are mentioned up front. They're not attached to any particular story. Right, right. Um, One of my stories is called Karmic Happenings. I remember to this day, 
um, about stopping a vehicle with a burned-out taillight. And the driver jumps out of the car, and he's saying, you know, don't arrest me, don't arrest me. I have a warrant for being suspended, but I have a date tonight, (laughs) a date with a woman. It's my first date in years, and I just know that this woman is the one, like the one he's going to marry. I just remember him shaking, and he said, you know, if we don't go out tonight, she'll never date me again. If you take me to jail, you know, the life that I wish for will never happen, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, as officers, we hear, you know, a lot of stories. And in this case, I'm thinking, well, you know, he's either being really truthful because of his disposition and his behavior, or he is like one fabulous liar, and I should just let him go just because of his excellent Hollywood (laughs) acting. But long story short, I do sense that he's telling the truth, and I simply let him go. Um, I still give him a ticket for the suspended license, of which I have that authority and option. And I, I tell him to leave the car on the side of the road and just get a taxi. And, of course, he was more than willing. Two years later, on an unrelated traffic stop uh, in a completely different town that's hundreds of miles away, I stop a possible drunk driver. I am by myself with no backup, and the driver resists arrest because he is obviously drunk, and we get into a fight, and we start rolling around in the Michigan snow, and at five foot two, 128 pounds, I'm losing the fight. Oh, dear. So then this big semi-truck stops behind my patrol car, and the truck driver hops out of the truck and assists me. So I'm able to cuff the person and place him in the back of the patrol car uh, with the truck driver's help. And then the truck driver kind of turns to me and he says, you know, you don't remember me, do you? I didn't remember him at first until he explained But come to find out, he's the man that I had stopped two years ago who had a date, you know, and I had let him go. And he was so happy, and he said, you know, I really actually married that woman, and I got my driver's license back, and I went to truck driving school. So it was just a nice heart-centered story, and it's of kind of a synchronistic nature in which, you know, what are the odds? you know, of that same person from a traffic stop two years prior seeing me rolling in the snow with somebody so far away from where he was stopped, you know, different part of the state. The Cosmic Court is now in uh, session. (laughs) The Cosmic Tumblers, unbelievable. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I'll remember that forever. Do you believe in coincidences? Well, yes, but no, I, I, I feel like There are meaningful coincidences, you know, as Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist, so amply put that we have meaningful coincidences that occur with no causal-type relationship, yet later on we can find them all to be very meaningful. And that's what the definition of synchronicity is. There are meaningful coincidences. Right, right. Now, after that altercation, or that rather that episode, did you find yourself maybe using more discretion when it came to, let's say, traffic stops and listening to people's stories and then maybe giving them the benefit of the doubt? 
Well, it's, it's interesting. I think that the public has this kind of misconception that everything is very black and white and that the decisions that we make as police officers, you know, are rules cut in stone. And that's simply not true. We actually do have discretion and, and we can make judgment calls in certain situations. And in answer to your question, I think it was a realization that um, I really do have the authority to discern and make decisions and not be so black and white about my decisions. So, uh, yes, I, I think that because I was a younger officer at that time and realized that uh, that decision was a good decision, um, I became more confident um, uh, to use my judgment as well as, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, practicing law, the laws and, and making right. sure that people are following the rules. As you were telling that story, and because I've read the story, I knew where it was headed, but even still, hearing you say it, that that uh, telltale shiver went up my spine, uh, which can sometimes be you know, caused by sort of a, a scary or a frightening episode, but in this case, it's a, it, as you say, it's a very heart-centered, uh, uplifting story, but I still got that tingle. Do you? Is that part of intuition? Do you get a tingle up your spine, or is there a sort of a physical response that's associated with trusting your gut or intuition? That's a great question because, you know, intuition can be uh, defined in so many ways. And for me, um, it's not necessarily uh, a physical feeling to go with it. It's the way the my thoughts travel uh, through my mind. And when there is a, a thought that comes through that doesn't seem to... Um, fit with anything else, I, I look at it. You know, it catches my attention when I suddenly, you know, think of something that doesn't seem to fit in the picture and I listen and I respond or I don't respond to it. So that's how intuition works for me. It's almost like being the watcher and watching your thoughts and feelings uh, traveling through your consciousness and paying attention to the ones that are different. Hmm. Now, you're a forensic artist, or you were yes. a forensic artist. There's a there's a, f- a fascinating story in here about a forensic or, uh, artist, uh, and this person had trained at the... Um, uh, in facial rec- reconstruction at the FBI Academy in Quantico. Did you study at Quantico as well? or? Uh, yes, I studied at the uh, FBI Academy and then also um, in Chicago at Northwestern University. So this particular forensic artist um, had quite an interesting uh, story. It, can, it, it, it deals with uh, being presented with a box that contained a human skull. Uh, that was pulled from a river. Uh, talk, to me, talk to me about that story. Uh, yes, this um, this uh, story originated from a uh, Michigan State Police uh, trooper, and she um, has a skull that has been sitting on the shelf for quite some time and decides to do a, a facial uh, reconstruction 
which has to do with using clay and tissue depth markers in order to develop a face to identify uh, the skull. Um, the story that's shared by this officer, uh, it talks about an unsolved case. Um, and yes, the skull was dredged out of the Clinton River, which is near Mount Clemens, Michigan. And the, um, the face that she develops on the skull is of a, of a young man. And um, when the officer shares the story, she shares it both um, uh, scientifically and how she also used her uh, intuition um, with reference to the facial re- reconstruction. And you're right, it was a lone cranium um, without uh, the jaws. So it was like half a skull that she had to work with. But the upper teeth were were still there. And so what she ends up doing, is she does the reconstruction as best she can without a lower jaw, and then she takes the initiative to look back at various cases where people uh, were missing. And she finds one that she um, feels really fits um, what this person looks like. It's not exact, but it's possible. And she sees the teeth um, uh, in the photograph of the missing person. And she thought, you know, um, I can work with this. And so eventually she um, um, takes the skull to a dentist, and um, uh, eventually is able to solve the case with the, the, the dentist's help. But again, had to take a leap of faith and rely on, on intuition. Yes. And, you know, there are certain aspects when, when we do facial reconstructions that are um, intuitive. Um, uh, you know, the, the smoothness of the skin um, we have to kind of base that on the lifestyle, uh, lifestyle of that person. What you know, uh, we think, you know, the lips look like because there's certain parts that um, are, are never going to be exact in a facial reconstruction. And I know with this with this officer, she was very good at her work, and she had several uh, wonderful uh, cases like this where she used her intuition and was able to find that person based now, on the skull reconstruction that she made. Now, I've interviewed countless psychics and intuitives and mediums and remote viewers and so forth over the years on this program. And many of them say that they have worked with police departments, but it's always sort of on the lowdown because police departments, they say, you know, they don't want it to get out that they're they're working with a a psychic to find a missing person or to solve a murder, but they sometimes will go to them as a last resort because, you know, all the leads have dried up and and the the case has gone cold. Um, But it it seems like, uh, you know, after reading this book and and listening to you, uh, there would be kind of that a more willingness to, you know, to work with psychics, given that many police officers are using their own intuition uh, talk to me about you know their their willingness to work with psychics. Does it happen more more than we think? I think it does. Um, I think there are more officers open to that than the public 
thinks and that you're absolutely right. When a case goes cold and there is absolutely nothing else to work with, why not work with a psychic? It could give you some ideas, you know, stir your thinking about the case. Uh, even if they're inaccurate, um, it can't hurt, you know, to try. So I know that in my department, um, we've utilized psychics. We just kind of keep it under our hat. We don't, um, you know, advertise it, you know, when we seek seek that kind of help. But uh, I've always believed that um, it's useful. You know, it can't hurt. And then we've come up with um, uh, situations where cases got solved, you know, using the ideas and visions of a good psychic. Now, you know, it came out uh, maybe a decade or more ago that the the U.S. Defense Department was trying to train uh, psychic spies. They had a remote viewing program. And I'm, I'm wondering if any police officers maybe take it upon themselves to try and train as remote viewers. Do you know of any? I don't know, but I heard of that. You know, I, I read about that um, pertaining to... Um, you know, the federal government uh, utilizing a remote viewers. But um, I don't know of any officers who ever volunteered or were sought out. But um, um, I know they had a number of ro- remote viewers, and I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if some of them were police officers. I wanted to add, too, that if there are any police officers out there or first responders who are listening... Um, If you're willing to share a story with me of an exceptional uh, human experience that you um, uh, experienced on duty, um, I will provide a free book in return for your story. Um, And if it's, um, you know, if it's published, um, uh, I'll give you that book. Terrific. All right. So we have this case of a snowmobile uh, with uh, two riders going through the ice. And uh, they bring in a, uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the cadaver dog, I guess. I think that's what they're called anyway. Uh, they sniff for dead bodies. And just a quick aside, uh, I was out in, in Death Valley a couple of years ago. I was filming an episode of um, Mysteries of the National Parks, and I met someone when he had a three-legged uh, cadaver dog. And what he, he was actually working on uh, the Manson uh, case because they, they were there are still I think bodies that Charlie Manson himself had, had murdered and disposed of in the desert and they're still looking for these bodies even though Manson has now died. But what he told me about this dog sniffing or this cadaver sniffing dog, remarkable their sense of smell. I mean the body could be fully decomposed, but just. A, a few molecules in the soil, like six feet down, is enough for the dog. I had no idea that they were yeah. able to do this. Okay, it's amazing. I, I saw a documentary myself about um, a dog that was trained to sniff for uh, cancer cells. That's how sensitive dogs are, and how good their smell is. And um, uh, in the documentary, you know, they did an experiment with five people laying you know, on the floor, and uh, they knew who had cancer and who did not, and the dog picked them out right away. That's how sensitive they are. They are absolutely remarkable. It's amazing. Remarkable yeah. creatures. So the bone lady is Sandra, and she has the uh, the uh, the dog. 
Yeah, and this story is a rather unfortunate one because it is told by a detective um, about this famous woman who is known to uh, find bones and bodies in the water with her cadaver dog. And you mentioned the two snowmobiles going through the water. It's just um, a short example of uh, one situation in which the officer uses her and she's wrong where she says, no, you know, the snowmobilers didn't go down here. I can see by the way the dog's acting, and um, there's there's no bodies here. Well, a week later, you know, bodies show up at the shoreline. So she was clearly wrong. And that's the first red flag that the detective sees, that, like, something's just not right. And it's it's a kind of a gut instinct or an intuitive feeling at that point. So he goes on to share of another time when his department utilizes this woman again uh, with her dogs in order to try and locate a woman's body who's been missing since uh, 1980. And through various signs, signals, and, um, you know, eventually uh, incredible intuition or divine intervention, the detective figures out that the woman is actually planting bones at the crime scene, and she obtained these bones from a university medical department. So she gets caught in the act as they're out on a, on a crime scene, and it's just a very unfortunate um, when these things happen. It, it, you know, it doesn't um, give a good reputation for other people who, who use those dogs ethically and wisely. Why did Sandra do that? What was, I mean, she was getting paid, I guess. That's the idea. Well, I, I thought from a psychological perspective that um, she felt under a lot of pressure to um, be successful and please the officers. That was the feeling that I got. Yes, she got paid, but um, I thought that she, she may have had uh, some uh, therapy issues. <laughs> that needed to be addressed in order to go to that length, you know, to um, please please investigators. And, so and very unfortunate. And the claim that, that dogs can, can smell dead bodies even underwater, is that true? Um, I've heard that it is, but, you know, if the body is um, 40 feet or 50 feet underwater, you know, I... I <laughs> You know, I can't believe that it would be possible. I, I'm no expert, but um, I have heard of cases where it's relatively uh, shallow water and uh, the dog can can smell something. So um, I, I do believe, you know, it's possible. But, um, you know, we have to use common sense in addition to, you know, good police work in order to, to solve cases. Right. Uh, utilizing dogs. And the other thing, I wasn't aware that they sort of contracted out that job, that they went to somebody who had a cadaver dog. I thought it would be it would be all sort of in-house, you know, that it would be a police officer or a dog that was a special, you know, a, a dog from the canine unit that was trained as a cadaver dog. Right. And I think um, with this, you know, every department is different and has different ways of utilizing uh, experts. I know that in my agency with the Michigan State Police, we have our, our own cadaver dogs. 
but other smaller departments can't afford necessarily to, to have a dog trained or a trainer, and so they use outside sources. And in this case, it happened to be a woman that was actually known to be um, really good at her work. Um, but for whatever reason, she just made that decision and that judgment error to plant bones. Thank you so much. Spirit of the Badge, it's been a delight meeting you and speaking with you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back with a few words about an upcoming episode. I want to tell you about something I discovered recently called Carbon 60. I call it the Miracle Molecule. Now, you might remember an interview I did recently with a researcher, Chris Burris, who's looking to help people who experience pain, inflammation, loss of sleep, or lost mental acuity with his new C60 company, c60evo.com. He has a product which is a consumable form of carbon-60 called ESS-60 that's been proven in peer-reviewed, published research to extend the lifespan of test rats by 90% while allowing them to live tumor-free. That's pretty amazing. Those rats were given the c60evo.com formula. The formula is a powerful antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C, and it's known to be a powerful anti-inflammatory. C60 is based on Nobel Prize winning chemistry. I highly recommend ESS60, the mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon every morning and we're both pain-free and sleeping better than ever. Discover the benefits of Carbon 60. I call it the miracle molecule, ESS60, from c60evo.com. Now, make sure to use the coupon code RS1SPEC. That's RS1SPEC. Buy today at c60evo.com. That's c60evo.com. And don't forget the code RS1SPEC. This product has not been assessed by the FDA and is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited, Ghosts of World War II. The story that stands out about Patton for me is that now he died shortly after he was involved in a Jeep crash. Now, both of his daughters claimed that the ghost of Patton either appeared to them or called, believe it or not, called them. One daughter said that she got a long-distance call, a, a transatlantic call, and she used to receive those quite often from her father. But this was different because she could hear his voice and communicated with him briefly, and then it cut off. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>